Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Welcome to this Blackstone Chambers podcast on the subject of subsidy control. My name is Kieran Beale, KC. I'm joined by two of my colleagues who will say hello. Tristan Jones. Hello. And then Emily Neal. Hello. Today we're going to look at aspects of the UK regime for subsidies in the light of the entry into force of the Subsidy Control Act 2022. You may find that we refer to that act occasionally as the SCA 2022. The Act introduces a new regime for the regulation of subsidies in the United Kingdom. It places the EU regime, which prohibited, with some fairly substantial exceptions, the grant of state aid. In one sense, you may wonder, why do we have to have subsidy control now? Surely in these post-Brexit sunlit uplands, why can't public bodies simply bail out lame ducks if they want to? Surely the UK is the master of its own destiny. The answer lies in the fact that the UK has already committed to control state subsidies in a series of international agreements. That is part of the price for liberalised trade in a global economy, as states seek to ensure world trade takes place so far as possible on a level playing field. There are two important ones in particular. First, the World Trade Organisation, or WTO, has an agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures as part of its GATT arrangements. That is their general agreement on tariffs and trade. Secondly, the UK and the EU entered into the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, or TCA, in December 2020. That was shortly before the expiry of the transition period accompanying the UK's withdrawal from the EU. Now, that amounts to an extensive free trade agreement negotiated between the EU and the UK. And as we shall hear, it has a section dealing with the control of subsidies within each of the European Union and the UK. Again, the aim is to ensure a relatively level playing field between the two jurisdictions. So in this podcast, we will be looking at the key changes that the 2022 Act will shortly bring into effect. We will also examine the different but interlocking regimes that govern the issue of subsidy control more generally. I think we'll have to consider how easy it will be to obtain a subsidy from a public body going forward and indeed how easy it might be to challenge the grant of a subsidy if you don't like the fact that one's being given. Let's get things started by defining one or two terms. Emily, I've got a challenge for you. In under a minute, can you tell us what is a subsidy? Okay, well, there's a four-part definition. First, it's financial assistance. Second, from public resources given by a public authority. And third, it's specific, so it benefits certain enterprises over others. And fourth, it's capable of having an effect on competition within the UK or investment or trade between the UK and another country. So it covers direct grants, loans, tax reliefs, even a procurement could be covered if it's not done on commercial rates or even certain types of regulatory intervention. I think that's less than a minute. You are indeed within time. Well done. Quick follow up, if I may. Is the definition of a subsidy significantly different from the definition of what was state aid all those years we laboured under the EU state aid regime? <laughs> well, I think the biggest change in the definition is that there's a focus on the UK's internal market. So the arguments which, as state aid practitioners, we often probably optimistically tried to run and um, to claim that the measure wasn't a state aid because there was no 
effect on trade between member states have fallen away under the new regime. And indeed, although the definition of a subsidy in the SCA includes measures with potential effect on trade between the UK and another country, I think the focus of the regime actually set down in the Act is very much on competition within the UK. So, for example, the CMA, when it reports on subsidies, isn't expressly required to consider competition between the UK and another territory, whereas it is expressly required to consider that um, competition within the UK. So that's, a, that's the biggest change to my mind. That's a very interesting point, and, and, and it does raise the question, which we'll come on to look at, as to the extent to which this Act does indeed give effect to the obligation under the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, to have a full and effective subsidy regime in place that deals with the, an impact on trade or investment between the EU and the UK. Yeah. Right, now we know what a subsidy is. Tristan, I've got a separate challenge for you. Again, in under a minute, please can you tell us what is new about this regime, doing so without hesitation, repetition or deviation, <laughs> and your time starts now. Right, one minute. I will firstly just explain the regime um, in five steps. Firstly, in broad terms, under this regime, a subsidy can only be given if the public authority is satisfied that it complies with the seven subsidy control principles, which are actually incredibly duplicative and boil down to saying it will be effective and proportionate to benefit wider society. There's some other principles for energy or environment um, schemes. Second, there's some additional requirements for certain kinds of subsidies. If you're rescuing an insolvent company, for example, that is harder. Third, on the other hand, there's some situations where it's easier to give a subsidy. Uh, emergencies, national disasters, national security, um, some other similar ones. Fourth, the CMA has a role, which we're going to look at in more detail, but basically giving advice on particular subsidies and whether they comply with the principles. Um, and fifth, <clears throat> any challenge to a subsidy uh, will be brought on judicial review principles in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. Um, I was exactly a minute on that, Karen. Well done. <laughs> That's truly impressive timekeeping. Just picking up on one particular point, do you see within the subsidy control principles in Schedule 1 a particular emphasis, for example, on impact on EU and UK trade or investment? Well, one of the principles, actually the seventh principle, is uh, about competition or investment, quote, within the United Kingdom. Um, and then after that, you're also supposed to look at international trade or investment. But it does not have a specific focus uh, on competition in the EU, for example. And another follow-up, if I may, what do you think, standing back, is the most significant change between the Act and the state aid rules that we've known and loved for 40 years? So, th th this might sound a little bit boring, but the biggest change is the procedural changes that come with it. it, it, it the whole thing is driven by this attempt to minimise um, bureaucracy. There's a few dimensions to that. The key one is the fact that state aid of course, had to be approved by the Commission under this new regime subsidies. The CMA has a sort of oversight role, but it's not approving things. There's other things uh, which are designed to make it more streamlined. Um, for example, uh, subsidy schemes can be approved. Streamlined subsidy schemes can be approved centrally. Um, they'll be done on things like clean heat incentives, and then local authorities can just take advantage of those. Um, so that's the main one. If you actually look at the substance and say, are there going to be things which will be lawful under the new regime, which wouldn't have been lawful under the state aid regime, or vice versa, I think that's much more difficult. There's certainly going to be different subsidies approved or disapproved because the process is different. Um, but the substance, um, much more difficult to say that there's a, an obvious difference um, between. And I should also say, whether it actually achieves the goal of reducing bureaucracy, 
uh, is also an open question because when you put all of the different um, measures together, it's actually quite a sprawling system that we now have. Yes. And um, of course, we don't have the general block exemption regulation, which yeah. was actually quite good at enabling businesses and indeed um, public bodies to determine that the state aid rules wouldn't be infringed if they brought things within the four corners of that particular regulation. So that's gone. Um, but I, no, I agree with you entirely. The CMA now has a, a substantially advisory role. There's no, pri there's no public enforcement powers and therefore all enforcement will be private enforcement only. That's a big change. Now, let's have a quick overview of where we are now, therefore, because it's important to recognise, um, I think, that we've now got three potentially applicable regimes here, depending on which part of the UK your clients or the public body is in and whether or not there's an actual or potential impact on trade or investment, either with Northern Ireland or with the EU more generally. So first off, um, the EU state aid rules have been abolished for the UK as a whole through Regulation 3 of the snappily titled state aid brackets, revocation and amendments, close brackets, open brackets, EU exit, close brackets, regulations 2020. That's SI 2020 number 1470 for the anoraks. And that disapplies the EU state aid regime under the treaties as it otherwise would have applied under the withdrawal agreement. Regulation 5 also means that the relevant state aid regulations aren't retained EU law. So we no longer have directly applicable EU state aid rules through the domestic regime, save insofar as they are retained by the Northern Ireland Protocol. And what Article 10 of that protocol does is applies the EU state aid provisions which are listed in Annex 5 to the protocol to measures that affect trade between Northern Ireland and the EU. So that's the first potential regime. We've still got EU state aid for a relevant trade under the Northern Ireland Protocol. The second regime is a regime that's been put in place through the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. This applies from 1st January 2021 and Title IX contains provisions dealing with the level playing field for open and fair competition and sustainable development. We have a definition of a subsidy given in Article 363, which largely mirrors the previous definition of state aid or definition of a subsidy in the WTO agreement on which much of it is based. And then we have some principles that have to be applied under Article 366, which essentially boil down, as Tristan has suggested, to subsidies hitting a public policy objective in a proportionate way uh, and not acting in a discriminatory manner. So, um, detail there in due course. How does the TCA apply? Well, through Article 5, it's not directly applicable by itself in the UK. It says that, essentially, Article 5 says that the, the agreement's not intended to confer rights on individuals. However, Parliament has chosen, through Section 29 of the European Union Future Relationship Act 2020, to give effect to the TCA, where it is necessary. And what that provision says is existing domestic law has effect on and after uh, IP completion day uh, so that it's compatible with the TCA so far as the agreement concerned is not otherwise implemented and so far as implementation is necessary for the purposes of complying with the international obligations of the UK under the agreement. But subsection 2 of section 29 says that's subject to any equivalent or other provision which is made by or under this Act or any other enactment which otherwise forms part of domestic law. So the idea behind this, and this has been recognised in the Court of Appeal decision in the Heathrow Airport case, is that Section 29 is intended to bring into line with the TCA all of the existing statutory framework 
so that there is no potential breach of our international law obligations under the free trade arrangement that we have with the EU. Lord Justice Green in the Heathrow Airport case, which concerned the abolition by the Treasury of the tax-free shopping extra statutory concession, looked in detail at how Section 29 was intended to operate. And what he said uh, was that Section 29 went beyond simply a statement of interpretation. And I quote here from paragraph 227 of his Lordship's judgment, it is more fundamental and amounts to a blanket generic mechanism to achieve full implementation without the need for any further parliamentary or other executive intervention. So stepping back, Section 29 is really quite an interesting section in that it is open to litigants potentially to invoke its provisions to say that a domestic measure, an existing domestic measure, is not compatible with the principles of subsidy control in the TCA and that the existing domestic provisions have to be read subject to it. Lord Justice Green confirmed that the effect of Section 29 was to give rise to an automatic modification of existing English law where that was necessary to comply with the requirements of the TCA. That, however, was subject to two statutory clarifications. First, it applied only so far as it was required, so any domestic provision that wasn't needed to implement the TCA wouldn't be affected. And secondly, uh, it was also subject to international obligations. And that was necessary because, of course, international obligations encompasses not just the TCA, but also WTO principles. Right, the third and final regime in our interlocking suite of different regimes is the uh, Subsidy Control Act 2022 itself. That act was intended in large part to give the UK an effective subsidy control regime, which would then discharge the UK's obligations under the TCA. Now, a large number of commentators have suggested that the act um, effectively does the job of discharging that obligation, and therefore there's no room left for Section 29. It will be apparent from some of the comments you've heard already that that is an open question as to whether or not the TCA obligations are entirely discharged by the regime we now have and query to what extent you can rely on Section 29 if you find that there is a gap in the patchwork quilt of compliance. Just on that note, I should make clear that the former Prime Minister, Mr Johnson, uh, Member of Parliament, did note that the aim of the new regime should be that it should be uh, more clear, permissive, speedy and consistent. And one need only speculate as to whether or not a subsidy control regime that is more permissive might be entirely consistent with having a full and effective system of subsidy control under the TCA. That gives us, I think, some idea of the complexity that now arises when having to give advice to our clients. Emily, you're a qualified Irish barrister. You are a qualified Northern Irish barrister, and you're a qualified barrister in England and Wales. How do you see the different regime that is now applicable in Northern Ireland being played out on the domestic scene over there? Well, what I find with Northern Irish clients is that they are at best in a state of bemusement, but really all of them are finding it very frustrating having to apply both regimes. So I find that clients in Northern Ireland are coming for advice early, much earlier than ordinarily you would expect counsel to be involved. Um, they're coming with their levelling up application um, forms and they are frustrated um, for example that they get a general block exemption um, benefit under the EU regime but they don't have that under the UK's new regime so they're having to think about different things and what I find quite interesting is that they're looking for 
some sort of a similar get out of jail card early in the UK regime. And there isn't really one, but they're looking for one. So for example, clients who've been quite happy to not take a clear decision on whether or not they are, for example, an undertaking or to use the SCA language and enterprise are now thinking about that quite hard and are thinking about, for example, restructuring so as they can get the benefit of uh, getting out of the whole thinking about the SCA early. Um, so I find that has been um, that has been the biggest change from my perspective, people really wanting to get legal advice on board early and thinking about taking points that they would have just let fly before. Um, and I think it's also an important thing to note, and I know you two are both well aware of this because of your involvement in some recent case law, um, but this isn't just a Northern Ireland problem um, because of the language of the protocol that applies um, in respect of any UK measure which affects that trade between Northern Ireland and the Union which is subject to the protocol. And as you and Tristan know, the, the, that um, effect on trade test, we may have some nice case law on, um, so I'll leave you to, to talk about that. But also we have a bit more certainty in terms of what is meant by that trade between Northern Ireland, uh, that trade which is subject to the protocol. So at the start there were some commentators who were saying well, this is really broad and the language of the protocol does talk about, for example, um, measures in tourism and broadcasting which sort of underpin North-South cooperation, but clearly we're now not going to be looking at that, that kind of um, spheres of economic activity. Um, it's been clarified by the Commission and the UK government that it only relates to trade in goods and in electricity. Um, so it is a, a narrower sphere of application, but potentially does extend to pan-UK measures. Yes, the decision you're referring to, I think, is the British Sugar case, a decision of Mr Justice Foxton. Uh, the reference is 2022 EWHC 393, open brackets, admin, close brackets. Um, that case concerned a challenge by British Sugar to an autonomous tariff-free quota, which the UK had established for imports of raw sugar up to a certain quantity. British Sugar challenged the measure on the basis that it affected trade between Northern Ireland and the EU and was therefore caught by the EU state aid rules that still apply in Northern Ireland. The judge in fact found that the tariff-free quota was a tax measure of general application which did not confer a selective advantage on Tate and Lyle who were a refiner of sugar and a competitor of British Sugar. Uh, he also found that there was not a sufficient effect on trade between the EU and Northern Ireland to bring the EU state aid provisions into play. What uh, his lordship did in that regard was to rely on a unilateral declaration that was made by the EU in the Joint Committee. That declaration stated that the state aid provisions would not be engaged in respect of trade between Northern Ireland and the EU, which was, and I quote, merely hypothetical, presumed or without a genuine and direct link to Northern Ireland. It must be established why the measure is liable to have such an effect on trade between Northern Ireland and the Union based on the real foreseeable effects of the measure. So what the judge found was that to bring the state aid provisions into play, based solely on some pretty minimal imports of refined sugar by Tate and Lyle into Northern Ireland, would be, and I quote, to permit a barely discernible tail to wag a very large dog. And he found that that was what the EU unilateral declaration had set its stool against. Tristan, um, we were on different sides in that case, regrettably, and no doubt you feel slightly differently about the judge's conclusions. What's your take on that test that's set for the effect on trade with Northern Ireland? It's really vague. That's my, my, my take on it. It's, it's, it's very, very vague. It, it, it apparently has to be a genuine and direct link. As you've said, uh, not written anywhere in um, 
the TTA itself. So this is a unilateral declaration from the EU that has established this test. Right, what is genuine and direct? Um, it's not that clear. It's clear that the judge, obviously this was the decision, he didn't think that the link uh, in, in that case was genuine and direct. But what is genuine and direct? Um, I, I think you can tease out a few things from the judgment, but these are really just suggestions um, because it's not that clear. Um, Firstly, I think in order for a, a, a link between Northern Ireland and the EU to be direct, uh, I think it's arguable that the uh, subsidy has to impact on trade in the subsidised product itself. Um, that is how I read the reference to direct, because of course in British Sugar what was happening was that there was a, 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 a preference scheme for raw cane sugar but the impact that British sugar was pointing to was an impact on trade in refined sugar. Um, and I think that's why the judge says it's not a, a direct link. As I say, just a, a hypothesis because it's not entirely clear. What about genuine? What is a genuine and direct link? I think there's maybe two aspects to this. One is it possibly has to come above some undefined minimum because the judge thought that the link that um, British sugar was pointing to was very small. But those were his words. Um, and secondly, it needs to be based on um, firm evidence. Um, and I say that because the judge said that British Sugar's case was based on unproven assertion. So that seems to be the sort of broad parameters of this. Uh, you know, what it leaves open is exactly where you draw the line. Um, if there's a UK-wide uh, subsidy which applies to Northern Ireland as to the rest of the UK and impacts on trade between Northern Ireland and Ireland in the subsidised product, that would seem, on the face of it, to fall within the state aid principles. And then the question will be, well, how much of it falls within? Is it just the Northern Irish bit or is it the whole bit? Um, and, you know, similarly, uh, uh, any scheme in Northern Ireland which um, it, it, it is liable to impact on trade with Ireland would seem to fall within those principles. Yes, that's important, of course, if you have a subsidy that's granted by an Act of Parliament, an Act of the Westminster Parliament, um, which for reasons we'll come on to isn't uh, four square within the controls established by the SCA 2022, that Act of Parliament may well apply and extend to Northern Ireland on an equal footing with Great Britain uh, and therefore may well require an analysis of whether or not the tax measure, for example, is then compatible with state aid principles. We're going to move on now to the second of the regimes just briefly and look at the, the um, analysis under the TCA because British Sugar also dealt with that and of course in the British Sugar case the UK government uh, defending the challenge brought by British Sugar and British Sugar itself agreed that there would be an effect on trade or investment between the EU and the UK more generally as a result of this measure and that therefore Section 29 could be applied and the compatibility of the measure with the TCA subsidy control principles was um, examined. The judge ultimately found they weren't breached uh, but it nonetheless was part of the analysis. Um, an argument run by Tate and Lyle in that case that there was no direct or um, actual um, potential effect on trade between the EU and the UK was rejected. And so you do have the slightly different test, arguably, um, for TCA to apply. Tristan, describe for us, if you can, in a nutshell, how the WTO principles and the TCA came to be applied in that case. Well, um, as you've explained, um, British Sugar also relied on the 
TCA and in broad terms the TCA sets out the framework um, which uh, has now obviously been adopted in the Act but it's in the in the TCA appears at very high level um, there isn't anything like the level of detail which we now have uh, under the uh, Act because it's so high level if you are having to rely on the TCA uh, you're necessarily in a territory where there are a lot of gaps which are going to be need to be filled um, by some other material um, or other case law. Um, the TCA itself is, in my opinion, um, a, a slightly strange hybrid of EU and WTO law. It uses the language of the WTO. So subsidies, uh, is, that's WTO language, not state aid. Um, on the other hand, the substance, insofar as you can sort of detect differences in the substance, the substance, broadly speaking, is quite close to EU um, state aid law. Um, I, you know, I no prizes for guessing why it is that, for political reasons, we've had to adopt EU law, but with WTO language. Um, there is also, I mean, I should just mention while I'm talking about the TCA, there's a requirement in the TCA that an independent body should have an appropriate role, quotes, appropriate role, um, which is wonderfully ambiguous. That's what gives rise to us having uh, the CMA with this um, low-level oversight role. Um, and it, it, the TCA, I mentioned doesn't doesn't have uh, the right of private enforcement. Um, well, sorry, it does require there to be a right of private enforcement. But if the EU wanted to try and enforce the TCA against the UK, it would not be done uh, in respect of a particular subsidy. It would be done um, through international dispute uh, mechanisms. Uh, Long-winded introduction. You asked me how did this play a part um, in the British sugar case. Uh, when the judge came to ask the question of whether the tariff in that case was specific, he had to uh, confront the issue of whether to draw on EU law or WTO law. Um, and uh, what he essentially did was drew on WTO law. Um, and he did that because he said the TCA has, quote, a different legal pedigree to the EU state aid rules. Um, and were derived from WTO rules, and broadly speaking, there were four points. One is the language point that I've already mentioned. Um, I, I mentioned subsidy. Um, similarly, uh, specificity. So he was dealing with whether it was specific, and that is a WTO um, piece of verbiage, um, because it would be selectivity in state aid. Um, secondly, uh, the fact that there's this dispute resolution regime um, which is uh, essentially the dispute settlement body under the WTO. That was important. Um, thirdly, Article 516 of uh, the TCA says, the interpretation and application of the provisions of this part shall take into account the relevant interpretations in reports of WTO panels and, and of the envelope body adopted by the dispute settlement body of the WTO, as well as in arbitration awards under the dispute settlement understanding. So you're pointed towards that body of case law. Um, and fourthly, uh, the judge pointed out that, that there's no role for the European Commission or any obligation to seek uh, sanction of the Commission before implementing a subsidy. So we are very much in a world, at least under the TCA, where the courts will be inspired, um, I think, by uh, the WTO case law. So practitioners are going to have to dip into WTO case law going forward. Is there a good textbook for us at the moment? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I mean, look, I should say, we will have to dip in, not only because of this potential lingering um, survival of bits of the TCA, but because, as I've sort of hinted at, the Act 
is based very heavily on the TCA. And so I think there's going to be quite a good argument um, that you still need to draw on WTO case law. Um, and can I just say, before answering your question about te textbooks, that um, I wouldn't want to exaggerate that. I mean, in British Sugar, there was this particular question about specificity. Um, but as I've said, you know, a lot of the principles are very much state aid principles. So we're also going to be drawing very heavily on, I think, state aid law. Is there a good um, textbook? It's slightly embarrassed to say this, but can I just point out that on the WTO website, there's really, really good um, resources, um, including um, this thing called the WTO Analytical Index, which goes through all of their cases um, and points you um, in a very helpful way um, to things which have been said by the dispute settlement panels and appellate body um, and so on. Um, there's also uh, a sweet and Maxwell publication called International Trade Law and Regulation, which um, I think is the Bible of this area. Um, otherwise, there's a, a lot of academic... Um, it's one of those areas which is very popular in master's courses. Um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, academic textbooks. Now, Kieran, whether you want to become the general editor of a new kind of UK-specific guide to WTO case law, maybe that would be helpful. Watch the space. <laughs> Right, let's move on to look at the Act itself, um, and in particular, you know, how much latitude does it give public bodies, and if you've disgruntled competitor, the receiving end of a, a competitor getting a subsidy, what can you do about it? Let's have a quick overview of uh, the core new areas under the new regime. The, the first and foremost is the creation of a subsidy database established by the Secretary of State, but likely to be delegated in terms of its day-to-day -day management to the CMA. Um, Public authorities will have direct editing rights when they discharge their duty to notify onto that database any subsidy that they choose to give. Um, An entry, in most cases, must be made within three months or, or one year if it's a tax measure, but not a tax measure, which is a subsidy scheme. The second core feature of the new regime is the mandatory and voluntary referral to the CMA that um, we've already talked about. So um, before deciding whether or not to enter the subsidy details onto a subsidy database, a public body has to decide whether it must refer the matter to the CMA for an advisory opinion first, or whether it should, in the exercise of its discretion, make a voluntary reference. Um, mandatory referrals to the CMA essentially arise either on a direction from the Secretary of State, which we don't anticipate in practice happening very often, um, but also if the subsidy or subsidy scheme is of particular interest, which is a new term of art defined by the Act. The definition of what constitutes a subsidy or subsidy scheme of particular interest is going to be set by regulation. The consultation on those regulations has just closed and early indications from the government's consultation response document are that the proposed regulations will essentially introduce a £10 million threshold. Anything that is a grant of subsidy or a scheme above that threshold in non-sensitive sectors will be a scheme of particular interest and in sensitive sectors which are defined in the in the schedule to the regulations the relevant threshold will be lowered to 5 million now all other subsidies are between 5 million and 10 million which don't meet those criteria will be subsidies of interest and they will be subject to the voluntary referral process these will be the core points seems in the regulations when they're made. There are various accumulation provisions to deal with um, subsidies being given on, say, a monthly basis that, um, on a cumulative basis over the relevant annual period, amount to those thresholds. Now, uh, two further points to note on the new regime that we'll come on to in a moment. Firstly, the limited scope for challenging primary legislation. And fourthly, 
um, limitations on the legal review, which we'll deal with separately. But if we could turn, Emily, first to just the core principles and how it's applied, how much flexibility does this new regime give to public bodies when deciding whether or not to grant subsidies? Well, I think there's a massive amount of flexibility. And it really hit home with me recently when I was looking through the CMA's draft guidance on the operation of its subsidy control functions, because the CMA in that guidance regroups these seven principles into a four-part framework. So first, identify the policy objective. Second, ensure the subsidy is designed to create the right incentives and bring about the change. Third, considering the distortive impacts and keeping them as low as possible. And fourth, carrying out a final assessment. Now, looked at looked at in that way, it looks just like a basic proportionality test. So have you got a good reason for doing this? Does it do what you're aiming it to do? And is it better to do it than not to do it test? And that is massively flexible. And obviously, each of the limbs will have to be properly thought through um, <clears throat> and will have to be evidenced. But as long as that can be done, I think it's, it's really flexible for public bodies. Tristan, the subsidy control principles are pretty open textured, aren't they? Uh, surely it would be quite difficult to challenge any specific decision on rationality grounds. I think that's probably right. Um, the impact assessment for this legislation predicted, I think, up to 30 judicial reviews a year, um, which, I mean, I always think, you know, we'll do our best, but that sounds <laughs> ambitious to me, because it will be difficult, it will be difficult, um, especially when you remember that you've got the CMA in this advisory role. So if the CMA has looked at a proposed subsidy and said, essentially, that it can go ahead and that it's satisfied with the analysis that's been done. It's going to be really, really difficult to challenge, as you say, on rationality grounds, um, that sort of decision. Now, what would, from a litigator's point of view, if you've got the CMA raising concerns and the public body then presses ahead in a way which perhaps doesn't quite understand the concerns or doesn't address them properly, then you're in much, you know, nicer territory as someone challenging it. Um, the other thing to say is, um, you've asked about rationality, but of course there's different aspects to that. So you might be not just saying that it's irrational at a high level, but that they haven't taken sufficient uh, investigatory steps, for example, um, which would come under the rationality heading. Um, so I think there are going to be ways to build up a case um, in, the, in that manner. Um, and lastly, we should keep in mind this is judicial review to the Competition Appeal Tribunal and they do apply the same standard as the High Court, um, but they've got more time uh, generally than the High Court does to look at these cases and they are very open in my experience to looking at cases in detail, to look, you know, looking under every stone, um, applying the same test but doing a really rigorous job. So difficult but certainly not impossible. Um, the CMA, as I understand it, is setting up a new advice unit, the subsidy advice unit, to discharge these obligations under the Act that are imposed upon it. Do we know how that will operate? Well, they've, they, they, they've been consulting um, on that. Um, there are, I think, as you've mentioned, certain types of uh, subsidy which must be referred to them, certain types which can be referred to them, and certain types which the Secretary of State can call in. Um, Emily's just mentioned um, some of the uh, advice which uh, has been issued um, to apply the principles. One point which I think is important actually for potential litigants who might be watching the CMA doing this is that the CMA has made clear that when they uh, are considering a scheme and giving advice, 
they will be open to input from others. So if you think that something needs to be taken into account um, or substance shouldn't be given and that there's particular evidence that needs to be um, factored in, um, the CMA will be open to receiving input on that. And as I've just said, the CMA's reports are going to be very, very important, I think, in this overall scheme. So you should take that opportunity and put everything you can before them because it's, I think, going to be easier to influence that stage than the later competition appeal tribunal stage. Emily, we've heard that the advice will be given by the SAU. Is there any way for a disgruntled person who doesn't like that advice to challenge it? Well, there's nothing express in the SCA which deals with this, but the CMA is a public body. Um, so in principle, insofar as there is a decision from the CMA, then it can be challenged. Now, there might be a bit of debate as to whether one can challenge a decision which is non-binding advice, but there is case law on the justiciability of advisory decisions, and there's certainly an argument to be made there. And I mean, as Tristan's just said, it seems to me pretty important um, in some cases to, to have a pop at that, because once the CMA has been through the decision and actually looking at its guidance, it's going to check against things like that duty to investigate that, that Tristan mentioned, that TM side duty. It seems to me it's going to be really hard to, um, to challenge uh, the public body decision if it follows the CMA's guidance. And similarly, again, as Tristan said, if the CMA is going to be allowing representations from third parties and there's some unfairness in the way in which that is done, that unfairness ground could get lost if you're just going to challenge the eventual subsidy decision itself. But what will be interesting is that because there's no express route to the CAT in relation to the CMA decision, will people be in the situation of having to issue a judicial review against the CMA in relation to its advice and almost in tandem issue an appeal in the CAT um, in relation to the same measure and quite how that will be managed um, is something which I think remains to be seen. I mean that brings us on I think to the subject of how one challenges a subsidy decision more generally. Um, what do you have to do if you don't like it? Well you'll have to issue a notice of appeal in accordance with the Competition Appeal Tribunal rules. Um, Someone will have standing if their interests may be affected by the giving of the subsidy, so that's quite a low bar. In order to decide whether to issue a notice of appeal, that interested party might want to have some further information. Um, and there's provision for that purpose in Section 76 of the Act. So that provides that an interested party can make a request to the public authority for information about a subsidy. And the authority has to provide such information as would assist in the making of a determination as to whether the subsidy was given in accordance with the Act within 28 days of the request. And I think interested parties are probably likely to avail of that, um, one, to assess the merits of a challenge, but also because it will have the benefit of giving them a bit more time to bring the challenge, because under the limitation provisions, time won't start to run until the authority provides a notice saying that it has complied with that request for information. And when you've got a one month, which effectively is, is a limitation period, when you've got a one month limitation period, having an extra 28 days is, is quite helpful. Um, uh, let's look at how the limitation provisions apply more generally. Um, how, do, how do they work when you haven't sought that pre-action information from the relevant public body? How do the time limits work then? Well, in effect, and putting it quite broadly, um, time's going to run from your transparency date. So that's when you ought to have known about the measure. Um, so either when it was published on the subsidy database 
or if it wasn't published, I suppose it will be when you ought to have um, found out uh, about the measure or known of the measure. And that is probably going to be one of the more interesting limitation aspects. My reading of, uh, of the new rule of Rule 98A, which has been inserted into the CAT rules, is that arguably no limitation period runs if a public body decides it's not a subsidy and never puts it on the subsidy database. Do you think that's a tenable construction, Tristan? I certainly think it's a tenable construction because um, of what you've just described, which is that time is a month from, broadly speaking, when it's on the database. And so if it's not on the database, um, you haven't had time such to run. The, the difficulty with it is it just to, you know, to a public lawyer seems so odd that you might have this category of decision, which is what we're talking about here is a public authority grants a subsidy but doesn't realise it's a subsidy and you want to challenge it as a subsidy. Uh, and actually British Sugar would be a good example of that because of course the whole argument there was is it a subsidy or not? So we didn't have the database in place at that stage because the Act wasn't in place but if the same set of circumstances arose again the government obviously wouldn't put that sort of thing on a database because they wouldn't think it's a subsidy. So does that would that mean then that British Sugar could just sort of drag its feet and um, two or three years down the line um, bring the JR? We didn't. We acted, um, I say we because I was on the team for British Sugar, um, very promptly and under the assumption that the normal judicial review rules would apply and that we had to do it promptly. Um, so maybe the situation has changed. Maybe you can drag your feet. Certainly there isn't any express rule saying you've got to go quickly. It just doesn't sit that well with me, to be honest. Um, so I think uh, if you know that the subsidy has, has been made, you would be much better advised to act very quickly than to drag your feet. I mean, of course, there's other practical reasons to act quickly, not least that your competitors are at an, at an advantage if they've got the subsidy, um, and you're very unlikely to get it um, to get it ordered to be um, refunded at the end if you've dragged your feet. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting question as well, I think, as to the extent to which the concept of legal certainty, uh, either at EU level for accrued rights cases or... Um, more generally in, under the common law in the light of the Supreme Court's decision in the FMX case, can be applied here so as to put in place an obligation not to, to drag one's feet. Certainly it's sound advice not to assume that the limitation period will simply be endless if a public body has assumed wrongly that it hasn't granted a subsidy. Um, is there any scope for judicial review of the public body if it decides not to list this subsidy? What do you think, Emily? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, on the basis of a failure to include the information in the subsidy database in compliance with Section 33, yeah, I think you can say it's a breach of statutory duty. Um, yeah, I think there is scope for that. I think there's probably one area, isn't there, where life going forward in terms of challenge is going to be extremely circumscribed, and that's where a subsidy is granted by primary legislation under the Act through various um, statutory provisions that I won't bore you with now. Uh, the default position comes out under Schedule 3 that Acts of the Westminster Parliament are simply not subject to the overall control principles of the Act. Um, acts of the devolved governments are, so there's a schism there, but certainly if it's an Act of Westminster that's granting the subsidy, then the only obligations are to enter the details on the subsidy database and to make a voluntary referral if they want to, to the CMA. Um, but there's then no follow-up uh, and certainly no concept of seeking judicial review of an Act of Parliament. Uh, under the present scheme. So it would only, I think, be if there was a link with Northern Ireland and you could get an EU challenge in, um, that you would have a sensible form of recourse. Query whether that's what the TCA envisaged 
i.e. the Westminster Parliament, giving subsidies without any control under the TCA agreement. But I think we all agree, don't we, that Section 29 makes it clear that that regime is only applied to existing domestic measures, and therefore if a new measure under, from an act of the Westminster Parliament is granting the subsidy, it's difficult to see how you would necessarily get Section 29 to um, come into bat for you. But I may be wrong on that. Tristan, you seem to be... No, no, I'm just, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm processing what you're saying. I, I think that's right. I think saying that Section 20, no, no I completely agree with that. I think that, um, you, 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 you know, you're not going to be able to judicially review an Act of Parliament. Um, I, 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 I well, unless we change the constitutional status, <laughs> rip up all that Victorian no, sorry, constitutional nonsense, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree. But, but there's this sort of related question which you mentioned, which is, is that was this envisaged by the TCA? I mean, clearly, uh, sort of short answer that was no, the TCA doesn't really uh, expect that an Act of Parliament is going to overrule um, what's in the TCA. Um, there is the provision in the TCA for an independent body having a, an appropriate oversight rule. Um, and I know, Kieran, you've been interested in whether this gap means that the CMA doesn't have an appropriate oversight rule because nothing would be overseeing an Act of Parliament. I mean, my own view on that is it, appropriate is such a kind of flexible word. I mean, it seems to me it is appropriate to have a body which looks at most of the important subsidies, um, but isn't going to be sort of second-guessing Parliament if Parliament decides to pass another subsidy. And if Parliament decides to implement a subsidy which for some reason is incompatible with the TCA, um, I, I, that would be a breach of the TCA because it's incompatible with the CCA, but I don't think it would be incompatible. I, I don't think it would be a breach separately because there isn't an independent body um, looking over Parliament's conduct. Um, that, that maybe that's a bit of a niche topic to have yes. gone into. <laughs> well, maybe for another podcast in due course. Um, so we've seen, I think, that the challenges might be quite difficult in this area. And um, we've seen a schism between uh, arguably what's permitted within Westminster and what the devolved legislatures can do. Do you think this means we might see regional differences arising between the way that the state aid, the, sorry, the subsidy, forward and slip there, the subsidy control provisions are uh, dealt with, say, between Scotland and Cornwall or between Manchester and, and Bath? Um, there will be differences, definitely, because what there, all this does is gives us a framework um, for granting subsidies. Um, and it does not set an industrial policy. Um, so any policy will be set uh, regionally, nationally, and at the regional level, there's obviously scope for different regions or different cities to have different policies. I mean, I should say just in that regard, the Act does not allow, this is one of the types of subsidies which is prohibited, um, contingent, subsidies which are contingent on relocation. So you can't say we will give you a subsidy if you move to our city or our region. So that kind of extreme race to the bottom won't happen. Um, but other forms of competition between regions which you might characterise as a race to the bottom could in principle happen. Um, hopefully they will liaise um, well between themselves to make sure it doesn't, but it could. Yes, I should also point out that um, blatant uh, rescuing and restructuring subsidies are likely to be brought within the scope of the uh, subsidies and schemes of particular interest and therefore be subject to required referral to the CMA. So therefore there'll be, a, for what I would call the old-fashioned bailing out a lame duck industry type subsidy, that's likely to be subject to CMA, CMA scrutiny. And I think we can predict the CMA would give a great deal of scrutiny uh, when dealing with that sort of subsidy. Emily, can you... In the sort of concluding moments of this podcast, how do you think the legal profession will react to these new regimes? Well, first, from the solicitor perspective, 
particularly given the short limitation periods, firms are going to probably start actively monitoring the subsidy database to keep an eye out for subsidies that might impact their clients. And from the perspective of the sector more generally, and probably particularly council, I think in the immediate term there's going to be a real desire for legal advice early. So I talked about the example of clients in Northern Ireland wanting advice at the stage of filling out a form. I think there's going to be a lot of getting used to the new regime and that, in the case of any um, scenario of uncertainty, is going to call for people wanting advice uh, and, and the need for specialist advice. Thank you very much. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. You may think we've had more time than we deserve already. Um, but that's it from us for now. Please do carry on listening to future podcasts from our colleagues and we wish you all a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more.